Welcome to Commercial Conversations Over Coffee, the show where two college dropouts turned real estate millionaires discuss all aspects of commercial real estate investing. Now, welcome your hosts, Tyler Cobble and apartment guy, Bruce Peterson. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome back to Commercial Conversations Over Coffee. I am Tyler Cobble, joined as always by my best friend and fellow sufferer of cedar fever, Bruce Peterson. Bruce, what's going on, man? Not a whole lot, man. You were here with us the other day in Austin, and you got to kind of feel my pain that I deal with every year, twice a year, and it sucks. But, you know, outside of that, things could not be better, man. I, I'm yeah. alive. I'm not raping and pillaging like, you know, other people may be. I don't know. But, yeah, I got a calm, good thing going. Yeah, that was pretty interesting. The Capitol was taken over by a Viking this weekend, uh, or this week, rather. So that was that was interesting to watch. Yeah. So we're not going to make this very political because we won't all have the same political views, whichever side we're on. But, uh, yeah, it's just just interesting. Everybody, please be safe out there is all I'll say. Yeah, absolutely. Man, I have been struggling to breathe for the last two days. I didn't realize how bad cedar fever is. I woke up this uh, yesterday and I was like, man, I can't breathe. This is really, really weird. I thought it was just the wine that I drank the, the night before and uh, woke up again feeling the exact same way this morning. And I was like, OK, I drank a ton of water yesterday. This is not because of wine. <laughs> cedar fever. Yeah, it's rough. It gets so bad here. And you'll see YouTube videos about it all the time that uh, you'll be walking through like brush if you're out on a hike and you'll see all of a sudden it'll be poof. There will be this yellow powder explosion in the air. And it's oh the gosh. cedar fever pop that disperses the pollen to reproduce itself. It, yeah, it's just it gets really, really bad here twice a year. So, yeah. uh, you know, but I love everything about Austin outside of that. So, you know, we just deal with it. Yeah, no, thank you. I am. Uh, I'll stick to my Nashville allergies. Thank you very much. Um, hey, if you are joining us live, feel free to leave your comments in the live chat. If you have any questions on anything that we're, we're going to be covering today, uh, we'd be happy to get around to them. Um, if you're joining us on the podcast, you can always join us on YouTube live uh, Fridays at 10 a.m. Um, if you ever want to join in on the conversation um, and have some coffee with with me, you can maybe have a, a tea or a matcha with Bruce. <laughs> well, it's late enough in the day. I've already had all the coffee I need by the time we get on air. So if I just keep drinking coffee or caffeine, dude, I'd be a wreck. Oh, yeah. Stay up until uh, till 3 a.m. Um, so today we're going to be talking about one of my, I guess, our favorite topics, really, because, I mean, we deal with this all the time, residential versus commercial real estate. You know, which is better? Which should I invest in? What are the pros and cons of residential? What are the pros and cons of commercial? Well, today we're going to dive into all of those. And if you read the title of the episode, I would imagine uh, you already know mine and Bruce's stance on residential versus commercial real estate. I mean, the title is literally why we never invest in single family homes. Um, now, Bruce actually owns his own home. So that's that's a little bit different. So you're going to have some insight in it that I won't because I, I actually refuse to buy single family, um, even even for my own home. But um, Bruce, what, what are some of the the aspects of residential versus commercial real estate that you want to cover today? I mean, obviously, we've got, you know, four four separate types or four separate aspects that we'll definitely be covering. And then I kind of want to open it up for a conversation with us. But what are your thoughts? Okay, so first of all, let's go to the caveat that, well, you and I next month are going to be buying single family. So be careful what you say, absolute, right? We're yeah. buying that thing on Douglas, but it's That's going to be single used family. for a commercial purpose. <laughs> right. 
Right. Right. So, I mean, we do the high single family in the right situation. So we're going to buy this house. What is it? Like 2000 square feet, 2,500 square feet. Probably not even. I mean, it's pretty small. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's right. It's like 15 to 1600. But guys, what we're going to do with it though, is we're going to turn it into offices for our companies, right? We currently lease from other people. Well, we're in the leasing business ourselves. So we always want to own the asset when it's possible and when it's practical. So that's what we're going to be doing here. So, okay. Single family, multifamily. We'll start with the overarching. I think 90% of the world or the nation, let's just keep it within the U S should never own their own home. And now half the people, half the people on this call hate me. And they think, you're a moron. What are you talking about? Okay. So let's dive into that a little bit. Now, I'm only coming at this discussion from a purely fiscal and financial uh, viewpoint. That's it. Now, there is something to be said, obviously, for quality of life. I want to be able to paint a bedroom if I want to. I get that. But we're only going to be talking about financials right now. Most people should not own their own home unless you have so much money, you don't have anything else you can put it in from an investment standpoint. And please don't ever tell me, oh, my home is an investment. No, it's not. It is not an investment. It's a speculative speculative risk. You have to have a place to live. Absolutely. Well, when I, you know, when I buy a house, it'll, it's going to go up over time. You don't know that for sure. How many people lost their homes in 2007, right? So you think it'll go up, but you don't know. You're hoping it goes up and it probably will. You're right, but you don't know it will go up. So while you're waiting for it to hopefully go up, it's taking money out of your pocket every single month. Well, so is rent, Bruce. Yeah, it is. But think about when you own your own home and your water heater blows up. You got to fix that. That's a thousand bucks. Now, if you do it yourself, you're handy enough to do it. It might be a couple hundred bucks, but still that comes out of your back pocket. It takes taxes, principal interest taxes and insurance, but then all the repair costs are put on you. I think now we're going to also approach this from a traditional mortgage standpoint. Now, some people can go out and get a 3% down loan or maybe FHA or some, some other organization gives you a zero. Maybe it's the uh, military stuff that you can get it for nothing down. Well, I think that's exceptionally risky. First of all, you have a slight change in the market and you're underwater massively underwater because you didn't put any equity into the house. You have no equity, everything in the house you owe on. Right. Um, so, you know, I think if you were to get a traditional loan, 20% down, and let's say, I'm trying to think of a decent number here. Say it's a $200,000 house. Now I know you could find $50,000 houses in really bad areas, but let's say it's a $200,000 house. you got to come out of pocket $40,000. I would argue you could invest that $40,000 and make 10 to 20% annually on your money. Now, I'm not saying in cash flow. I'm saying by the time the, the deal that you invest in matures and sells, you would have averaged 15 to 20% on your money. So I think that's a better use of your money than sinking it all into a house that you hope. Again, it probably will, but you hope it will go up. It might not but it takes money out of your pocket every single month. Why not go rent, take that huge lump sum of money, put it into an investment. I think that's a better use of money for you and your family. So that's where I want to start the conversation. 
you know, my niece bought a house without consulting me. She was 22, maybe 21. She was so proud. And I didn't want to burst her bubble when she told me, but you know, she was a stay at home mom and her husband made $10 an hour and they bought a house because they could, because somebody gave them a loan. Well, when she told me that I had to, I had to show some restraint. I love her to death. I don't want to destroy her. I don't want to burst her bubble. But I was like, oh, uh, well, I'm happy for you. That That's great. But there's a lot that's going to go into this. And sure enough, she ended up losing the house, right? Wow. For most people, I don't think it's the best decision. Again, I want my kids to grow up and form memories in the same house for 40 years. I get the intangible side of it. And there is something to be said for that. But again, if it's just looking at financials and the fiscal side of it, I don't think most of us should own our own homes. Yeah, I, I subscribe to the exact same opinion. And uh, if, if y'all haven't noticed so far, obviously, we're going to be covering some uh, what I think are somewhat controversial opinions um, on residential and commercial real estate, because, you know, you're, you're told when you're growing up, the American dream is, you know, you buy a home, you live there for 30 years, you build equity in it. And that's, you know, you make a bunch of money that way. And it's, it's just not true. You know, uh, I hear people say all the time, like your home is the biggest investment you'll ever make. Well, I'm sorry, if your home is the biggest investment you'll ever make, that's a terrible investment. That's a terrible investment. Um, and we'll it's, get not into, we'll, it's not an investment at all. It's a glorified bank account if that you have to maintain. Um, is really how I feel about it. But before we really dive in, um, you know, I kind of want to cover real quick commercial versus residential real estate. So what are the differences between the two? I mean, Bruce, how, how do you define commercial? How do you define residential real estate? So residential to me is single family up to fourplexes. That's it. Everything else is commercial because you're buying it as a business. The majority of single family homes are sold as single family residences for people to live in themselves. So with lending, everything four units and below is considered residential. Everything five units and above is considered multifamily. Multifamily is commercial. So again, to me, commercial is anything that you're going to buy as a true business. That's the, really the only reason it's bought. It's bought as a true business from uh, one business owner selling their business to another business owner who will then buy that business, generate income to pay the debt, pay all the expenses and then put profit in their pocket. Yep. I would agree with that. I mean, I, I my definition of it is basically, you know, residential real estate is where you're going to sleep at night. Right. Um, I, I define commercial as any place where you're not going to sleep at night. Now there are, there are obvious exceptions to that. I mean, you know, I, I'm looking at buying apartment complexes. Well, if I buy a good enough apartment complex in Nashville, I will probably move into one of the units. Now, that being said, I'm not going to use the whole multifamily apartment complex as my home, right? Like, this is not how it works. Um, you can do the same with a hotel. Um, so, you know, that's that's kind of how I look at it. I can't justify, um, you know, buying residential. I know we're going to go way further into that, but that's kind of how we're looking at commercial and residential real estate. It's, you know, commercial is there really as, as more, I mean, it, you break down the word commercial, it's commerce. Anything that is intended for business use, um, whereas, you know, residential is for a resident, somebody who stays there, lives there full time. Right. So people watching probably saw me shaking my head and smiling when you said some things that you said. So let me tell you <laughs> what I was talking about or thinking about. Okay. So, you know, if I buy a nice enough apartment complex, you know, I probably will live it 
bad, bad, bad idea. Don't do it because they will eventually find out you're the owner and they'll knock on your door at two o'clock in the freaking morning and say, hey, my toilet's stocked up. Don't ever live on site. I mean, really, really <laughs> bad idea. Um, it makes sense, again, physically, right? Financially, it makes perfect sense. Why not? I'm going to live in an apartment complex anyways. I might as well live in my own, you know, at least the money's going back into my own pocket. Yeah, but there's so many other bad side effects to doing that. So just if you decide to do that or if anybody decides to do that, I'm not going to say don't, but you really better think that through. Yeah, that would not be a lot of fun if you had people knocking on your door uh, trying to get the fixed. But I would, uh, you know, man, I, I mean, I leave the house at like 7 in the morning. Most people are still sleeping by then. So I think, I think we'd You'd be, be good. Surprised. <laughs> You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. Yeah, so um, show up. When I show up on site on a property that I own, I don't even want them to know that I'm the owner, you know, not even living there. Now, if they pointedly ask me, are you the owner? Of course, I'm never going to lie to them, you know, but I don't want them to know who I am. I want them to know maybe I'm an asset manager. Maybe I'm a regional property manager, but I don't want them to know I'm the owner necessarily. Because the biggest thing that happens when, when you start telling people that, yes, I am the owner Every time they see you on site or if they see you on site regularly enough, they'll wait until you get there to express any concerns, any work orders that need to be done. They they will just go straight to you because they think, oh, well, you're the owner. I need to talk to you because so it completely undermines your property management team. So that's why I just don't like anybody knowing that I'm the, uh, the owner unless it unless they pointedly ask me or there's a reason I have to let them know that I'm the owner. A few times I have actually been sitting in a back room listening to interactions between my staff and um, tenants or relatives of tenants. And I've actually come out and said, OK, I'm the owner. You can talk to me. So because sometimes people get belligerent, disrespectful and just mean and hateful. And if I'm ever on site, I will come to my staff's uh, rescue, if you will, or to their to their defense. Uh, but I don't like to do that. That's that. That's weird. But anyways, uh, where do you want to go with this next? So next, we are going to talk about the pros and cons of residential. I mean, obviously, I you know, we, we want to kind of be relatively fair to residential because I do think for some people it, you know, if you're trying to um, invest in real estate, you know, I would say choosing residential over it, nothing is is obviously better than nothing. Right. So, uh, you know, Bruce, what do you see as the pros and cons of investing in real estate? Why do so many people invest in residential? Well, it's what they know. It's what they understand. And now they don't completely know, completely understand, but they can they can identify with it. Right. They've lived in their own house. They bought their own house. So they understand a single family house. They're scared to death of an apartment complex. And it, it shouldn't be anything to be scared of if you have the right coach or mentor with you. It, it's very doable. But I think that's why people can't fathom the the thought of you know owning something that large a five to a hundred to a 500 unit apartment complex that scares the hell out of everybody and i totally totally get that but basically you know to add on to what you were saying get started and if it is single family there is absolutely nothing wrong with that at least you're starting you're making a change you know you're trying to grow a real estate portfolio so Again, it's not that it's bad at all to own single family rental real estate. It's fan, it's fantastic. But when you can get to commercial, you need to get to commercial. There are so many benefits to commercial over residential. But residential, like, look, you're putting somebody in a house that you renovated. 
they're going to pay you, uh, you rent and it's going to be hopefully more than you're paying in PITI and maintenance costs because you need to make money from this endeavor. Well, so the beautiful thing about it, you're going to put some money in your pocket each month, but also remember, and everybody knows this, right? Your renter is paying down your mortgage. So every year you're going to get two to 4% usually an additional equity in that deal from the principal pay down that your tenants are making on your behalf. So again, I think it's great to own single family. It's a lot more difficult. It's a lot slower. It's a lot harder to manage. It's, it's not as predictable and the upside is not nearly as high as commercial. But again, I would say use it as a springboard or a path to commercial. I think multifamily is probably the best of the bunch, but it comes with the lowest returns within commercial. But I think you got to get to commercial as soon as you can possibly get there. But yes, buy a single family rent home, do it properly, treat it like a business from the beginning, do it right, pay professionals to help you remodel it, to get it ready for rent, uh, put the right people in there, screen them, do background checks on them appropriately like you should be. And it's great. But again, it needs to get you to commercial. Yeah, I mean, you know, residential real estate is really interesting, right? I mean, it, 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 it used to be the thing. I mean, my grandfather has a portfolio of residential real estate. And, you know, I think that one of his regrets is not getting further into commercial uh, when he could. He has, um, you know, we do, he does own some flex space here in Nashville, which is incredible. It's an incredible asset for him. It's by far his best performing. Um, but, you know, you, you look at residential and to me, what doesn't make sense is the scalability, right? I mean, you're, you've got one tenant, unless you're buying a duplex or a triplex, in which case you could start to even argue a duplex or a triplex is multifamily, but it, you know, it's, it's obviously not per winning. Multi-unit. Right. Multi-unit. Um, you know, you've got one tenant and one property. So, you know, if you buy, if you are able to somehow buy a hundred houses, you've now got a hundred roofs, a hundred HVAC units, a hundred tenants and a hundred locations. I mean, I can't even imagine how miserable that would be to deal with. Whereas if you buy one apartment complex, that has a hundred units, you've got one location, one property manager that you could probably justify close to being on site full time. And you've got one roof to deal with one HVAC system. It's just so much more easily dealt with, um, than, uh, than residential in my opinion. And, and, you know, Bruce kind of touched on this earlier. I mean, look, I, I've lived in apartments for, my entire life. I mean, I, I've never bought a single family home. I just, I cannot justify that expense. And, you know, one of the biggest reasons is I can pay $1,500 a month for a one bedroom in Nashville where I've got a pool, I've got a gym, I've got, you know, key card access to a parking garage that's covered. So, you know, my car is safe. Uh, you know, I'm safe. I can walk to the grocery store. I can walk to these restaurants. It's in a phenomenal location. It's fifteen hundred a month. Uh, if if my if my dishwasher breaks, I call the property management company. They have to fix it while I get to go to work and not worry about it one bit. And to me, that is phenomenally convenient and worth the fifteen hundred a month. Yes, maybe. Yeah, you could argue maybe I'm throwing away fifteen hundred a month. But to me, when I when I compare that to my opportunity cost, 
Um, it's it's way worth renting an apartment over owning residential real estate to me. Um, if I was going to buy a single family house in that same area in East Nashville, then I would probably be paying seven or eight hundred thousand dollars for a house. Because think about it: if I'm going to have a gym, I'm going to have a pool, I'm going to be walkable to all these amenities. That's going to be a very in demand house. And you know, if I've got to put fifteen or twenty percent, it's probably going to be twenty percent down. Um, then we're looking at you know twenty percent of seven hundred or eight hundred thousand. It's one hundred and forty to one hundred and sixty thousand dollars. And as Bruce said, I mean, we can go put that into commercial real estate, get 10 to 12% on that money. I mean, 10% on $140,000, that's 14 grand a year. That almost pays for my rent in and of itself, uh, not to mention the appreciation. So uh, to me, um, you know, there's far more cons to investing in residential real estate. But I do want to say we do have a number of clients in, the, in my commercial real estate brokerage that started off in residential, as, as Bruce said. They bought 6, 8, 10, 12, 20 plus single family homes. And then we bundled them up, sold them to an investor. And they 1031 exchanged into shopping centers, office buildings. As soon as they were able, they jumped into commercial. Um, you know, I think one thing that we haven't touched on either is property management. I mean, Bruce, how much easier is it uh, for commercial as opposed to residential to to manage property? Well, let's talk about residential. So a lot of people say, well, I don't have to deal with anything because I'm going to hire a property management company. Fine. Perfect. No, no worries. You still need to keep eyes on that property, even if it's not in your own state. A lot of people buy out of state. Totally fine. You need to have a, a take a flight at least once or twice a year to make sure it didn't burn to the ground or they didn't tell you and they're just falsifying documents, right? So you, you got to keep your eyes on it. But let's say you buy a house and you find a property management firm to do it. Average is about 10%, right? It's 10% of rent, not 10% of cash flow. It's 10% of rent. Let's say you rent the house for $1,000, right? So you're going to have to, I say 10%. So it's per month, right? So 12 months at 10% of that thousand, that's $1,200, right? For the year, it's 1200 bucks. A house that's a $100,000 house rents for $1,000 in this example, you're going to say, you know, you might get $200 worth of free cash flow a month, right? So $200 of free cash flow, you paid somebody $1,200 over the year to manage it, Right, it takes you six months to get that that profitability. Now, my numbers might not, not might not be perfectly dead on. I'm not in that space, but this is the concept of it. You gave, let's just say, you give somebody three to five, maybe six months of your profit to manage that asset for you. Oh, but it'll appreciate again, just like buying a home that you live in because you know it will go up. You don't know it will go up. You think it will, and it probably will, but it doesn't necessarily happen. It doesn't always happen. People lose their homes all the time because it didn't go off like they thought it did to justify the purchase. So again, if you give somebody 10%, which is kind of average for property management, that's going to be three to six months of profit gone. And then think about it. Let's say, you know, in month nine, you have that water heater blow up we talked about. That's a thousand bucks. That's another five months of profit. You're you're done for the year, right? There's a chance that all of your profit for that year is gone. And then let's talk about vacancy. You have a single family rent home and it goes vacant because you had to evict somebody. 
or somebody moved out in the middle of the night and just skipped on you that you didn't anticipate, or it's the end of the lease and they decide they want to go buy their own home and you're not willing to sell yours to them, you're going to have vacancy. When you own a house, you have a vacant pr uh, property, you're 100% empty. You're coming out of pocket to pay those uh, to pay that mortgage. If I buy a 100-unit property or a 50-unit or even a 10-unit property and I have somebody move out, I still have nine other units contributing profit to me. So really on every front, commercial is better. Again, you got to get started somewhere. Please, if the only place you can get started right now because of your bank account is single family, please go do it. Put enough of them together over time and then roll it like you said your client did and get into commercials. So, yeah, the management's totally different. It, it's a lot bigger drag on your profitability in single family than it is in multifamily, which is commercial. Um, but it's just easier to manage multifamily, too, because like you said, if I have a 50 to 100 unit property, I can afford at least part time staff that will run it on my behalf. Now, I have to keep eyes on them, make sure they're running it the way I think it needs to be run, make sure they're treating everybody with respect, keeping the place in good repair, but they're doing it for me, right? And it their salary is baked in to my operating budget. It's not, well, I mean, it is in single family, but it's already there. When I figure out my free cash flow on a monthly and an annual basis in an apartment complex, it already assumes water heaters are going to blow up. HEAC systems are going to die and I have to replace one. It already accounts for all of my payroll, all of my marketing, all of my utilities. My bottom line profitability already had all that taken out. So it's more rational as well. Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. I mean, if you're looking at property management on multifamily, I mean, you're talking about what, 3 3%, 4%? Uh, you know, in management fees as opposed to 10% on residential. And you think about how much of an impact 3% has on 100 units as opposed to 10% on one. I mean, it's just, it's, it's barely there. And again, you know, we're all here to invest in more real estate, right? Like we don't want to go manage properties that we're buying because that's the worst use of our time. And so if you have somebody else that's on site full time, that's managing the asset for you, uh, well, you'll be managing the asset, but they're managing the property for you. It frees you up. You can go do where you know, you know what you're best at, and that's finding the next investment property. Right. My first property was a 48 unit that I bought in Austin in 2012. And a buddy of mine that owned a 200 unit down the street, he said, hey, you know, you don't spend enough time on your property. I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, you know, if you would spend 40 hours a week there, you could get at least a half a point better return out of it. I'm like, kiss my ass. Not that's ridiculous. <laughs> I hire qualified, experienced people give them the tools to do the job that I expect them to do, tell them the job that I expect them to do, give them their measurables, hold them accountable, but they do it. That's a 15 to $20 an hour job. Are you kidding me? I'm more beneficial to myself and my partners going out and finding additional deals, connecting with investors, you know, having lunch with a broker. That's where my time is best spent. It's not sitting in a freaking office doing a, you know, a $40,000 a year job. And there's nothing wrong with $40,000 a year jobs. Again, don't take that wrong either. It's great. If that's what you make, it's your job. Fantastic. But if I can hire somebody to do that, I can still pay my own bills. So, but I can hire somebody else to do that. I can go out and make hundreds, if not thousands of dollars on an hourly basis by getting more deals, by making more connections. So, yeah, uh, you know, 
again, pay somebody else to do the stuff that's menial. And again, I'm not downplaying what the, the job that they do, but somebody else can do that for you while you go out and do the higher purpose uh, jobs. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the basic tenets of entrepreneurship, right? Is figure out what you're worth an hour and don't do anything that pays less than that or that you can pay somebody else less than that to do. Um, and if, if your time is worth 1000 or 1500 or $2,000 an hour, why are you doing 15 to $20 an hour work? I think, uh, I think that's a great way of putting it, Bruce. Um, we've kind of danced around this a little bit, but Tabina asked, uh, would you suggest to start with residential before commercial? I know, obviously, like I said, we've danced around this, but Bruce, what would your, what would your opinion be here? Yes and no. If that's the only place you can start because you don't have the funds to get into multifamily or more traditional commercial, uh, absolutely. Start, start investing in real estate however you can. If you don't have the funds to get directly into commercial, there's again, there's nothing wrong with it. And yes, absolutely. I think it, it's a great idea to at least get yourself started. So, but if you have the money and the time to devote to commercial, just go straight into commercial. I never bought a single family rent home. I never invested with somebody else in a single family rent home. I only have bought multifamily and commercial. That's all I've ever bought. And I don't regret it at all. You know, and a lot of people say, Bruce, you know, for the people especially that are already owning single family rent homes. Oh, but yeah, I can't do that. Bruce, I don't know anything about that. That scares me to death. Oh, okay. I get that. Did you know how to ride a bike before you tried to ride a bike? No, I learned. Okay. Did you know how to invest in single family rent homes before you did your first one? Well, no. Well, then how is this any different? It's the exact same thing. People get comfortable. I think they atrophy, right? They start to waste away because they're not challenging themselves. You know, there's a saying, I don't remember who who's saying it was, but what gets in the way of a great life? It's a good life. I think maybe it was Tony Robbins or somebody, but that's true and that's powerful. I have a comfortable life. If that's all you want, fine, that's okay. But if you really want to have the life that you never dreamt possible, you really need to break out of your comfort zone. You can make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year or even in a single transaction, if you get yourself into commercial. You can have a good, you can have a, a decent living for yourself and single family. It's still better than working for somebody else in my humble opinion. But if you really want to make a job, I mean, a, a, a business of this, a career of this, and be able to travel whenever you want with whoever you want for as long as you want unlimited money to give to charities, to tithe to your church, to give back in whatever way suits you. Commercial can do that for you. Multi, a single family can, but it's super, super hard. It's a lot harder. It's going to take 50, 100, 200, 300 houses. That's a nightmare. At that point, you have scale. You could probably afford to have a property management company, but your upside's not going to be what my upside is in commercial. Lending is totally different, right? We haven't even talked about those two things. So, yeah, I think starting in single family is perfectly fine. And I encourage you to do that if that's where you need to start. Again, have a good coach or mentor to make sure you do it right. But, yes, please get started somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say something pretty pretty similar and along the same vein. I think, you know, look, I mean, we're not going to sit here and pretend that um, we had zero experience and just got started in commercial. Right. I mean, you know, Bruce had, had been working in retail for years, had saved up some money and had you know joined a a i guess a mastermind group on on multifamily right so he was surrounded by people 
that were like-minded. And that, that is a huge help to have somebody um, in your corner, in your circle, uh, your circle of influence as well, uh, that understands multifamily, right? Like I started off as a commercial real estate broker. I mean, I did that for four, five years uh, before I started buying commercial real estate. And so, you know, I had some experience before. So, you know, if you're, if you're working a, if you're younger and you're working a job that has nothing to do necessarily with real estate, but you want to start off in commercial, I highly recommend getting a job as an analyst, getting a job as a commercial real estate broker, getting a job as a project manager, finding a mentor, somebody that can show you the ropes. You know, one thing that I tell people all the time, cause I, I you know, Bruce and I get people reaching out to us, asking us to help them with deals all the time. And, you know, I think we're always happy to help where we can. But the one thing that I'll say is, like, if you want to learn how to do commercial real estate, go find somebody that is incredibly successful uh, where you want to be and ask them what kind of deals they want to see and then go out and find them a deal. Because, I, I mean, I tell that to my junior brokers, my interns all the time. It's like, look, you want to be involved in one of my projects? That's totally fine. I'll give you a piece of the project. Just go find me something. And then I'll show you how to do it. What I don't have time to do, and I think Bruce is kind of in the same way, and we don't mean this in a, in a you know, I guess pompous way, but like we don't have time to just sit down and teach you how to, how to do commercial real estate. I mean, that's why we're, we're doing this podcast. Hopefully, um, you know, we can use this as a resource for everybody to, to teach everybody. But we just don't have the time to go through, you know, individual by individual and teach people how to do it. Now, what makes it worth it for a real estate investor to show you the ropes is you bring them a deal. Because they will make money, it gives them something to work on, and that's honestly the best way for you to learn how to do commercial or multifamily. It's to actually do a deal, and I think you know Bruce would argue the same thing. I mean, Bruce, how much did you learn on that forty-eight unit apartment complex that you bought that you didn't know before you actually dove in? Well, yeah, a ton. So a lot of people get locked up that they they get stuck in this perpetual planning mode. You know, I, I don't do this anymore, so please don't anybody hit me up. But I, I mentor. Uh, I've got a, a mentee that I, I'm working with. And I was talking to him the other day, and he said, yeah, the, the problem I do face a lot of times, Bruce, is I know who I am, and I, I like to to study and research and read and listen to podcasts. And, you know, I'm not always the best at follow-through because – and I understand that. There's two things going on there for most people. Either you're scared to make the jump. And I don't think my my uh, mentee is scared to make the jump. It's just, it's fun. Learning is fun, right? When I plan a big family trip, honestly, and maybe other people feel this way too, but honestly, the biggest thing, one of the biggest things for me is I love the planning of that trip. It's fun. What route are we going to take? Where are we going to stay? What activities are we going to do? Are we going to do when we get there? So there's a lot of that, right? And I understand, but you have to, to, to take a step, you know, make that jump because just reading books is not going to get you there. You have to, at some point, jump off the cliff with a parachute and that parachute being a coach or a mentor. So what you're saying, Tyler, is absolutely accurate that, you know, the best way to do, uh, to learn is to do. But I also think having a mentor in your, in your corner or a coach is a great way to go about doing it too. So, Work directly with somebody by finding them a deal if you can, but don't be afraid to pay somebody ten to twenty thousand dollars, which is yes, a crap ton of money. But they're going to teach you how to make thousands and thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of dollars, or if not more. 
So don't be afraid to pay somebody to teach you how to do it. You, you got to learn how to do it. But then at some point you do have to jump. You got to get out there and do it. Yeah, I mean, that's so valuable. I mean, you know, we covered this a little bit in the episode about me. Um, I don't know, episode two. But, you know, when when I first got started, I was in that feedback loop of like, if I just listen to one more podcast, if I just read one more book, if I just have one more conversation with a successful investor, then I'll figure it out. And, you know, you have that conversation and then you, you kind of get back into it. You're like, well, I got to have another conversation. You know, I didn't really have the balls, honestly, to buy commercial real estate until I bought commercial real estate. Um, you know, I bought my first office building in February of 18, February of 19. And um, that year I bought three more buildings after that. I mean, it just it just took my doing it to finally realize like, oh, okay, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. Like, it's, it's totally fine. We can, we can jump in and do this. And, you know, Bruce and I also talked about, you know, how he was basically a mentor for me, right? I mean, I met him a few years ago at, at a, a multifamily syndication event, and I didn't know what multifamily syndication was. And so I just started picking his brain and grabbing lunch with him and, you know, hopping on phone calls. And then eventually we got to a point where we started looking for deals in Tennessee, um, we still haven't found one yet. So if you have 200 plus units uh, available for sale in the Tennessee area, give us a call, <laughs> uh, shoot us a DM. We are very interested in buying multifamily in Tennessee this year. Um, but you know, it, it really took that. I, I mean, I kind of called Bruce. I was like, look, man, I want to go find us an apartment complex in, in Tennessee. And obviously Bruce is very interested in getting into Tennessee as well. And I was said, what do you want me to bring you? What do you want to see? What's going to make sense? And so we've gone out and looked at a number um, since then. Yeah, I think I think it takes that. It kind of takes that mentor relationship too. Yep, I agree. So one, I'm going to go into a couple of other things too until we get other questions maybe or we have another topic. But some things that we haven't hit on is uh, let's just start with lending. You know, oh, so yeah. when I got started, so again, it's why commercial is better than single family or residential, right? So when I got involved, I had already retired at the age of 42, didn't have a job, had no experience, no track record of any kind. I had a strong coach I was working with and I had investors lined up, but I had no experience. So who the hell's gonna lend me uh, money? Okay, so I've got that working against me, trying to get started in commercial real estate or apartment complexes. Well, about, Two years prior, maybe three years prior, I was a Dave Ramsey guy, right? I, you know, you got to pay off your house immediately, as quickly as humanly possible. And if you can write a check for it, write a check for it. You don't want to owe anybody anything ever for any reason. That's all stupid. But uh, I've learned better now that I think like an entrepreneur and think like a millionaire. Um, but so that was my brain back then. So I wrote, I, I quit working for other people. I wrote a check for a house. And I'm living in my house, loving life, thinking, oh, this is great. I did what Dave Ramsey told me to. Life is good. So then I find real estate, you know, because I get bored after a year playing in my yard by myself because I'm not married. I uh, don't have a girlfriend. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, what the hell am I going to do with the rest of my life? So I found real estate. And I thought, okay, great. I got all this equity in my house. I want to go to a bank and say, hey, I want to take out an 80% loan or even a 70% loan, get the cash out of my house and be able to invest that. Everybody goes, no, you don't have a job. I'm like, but I got a lot of money. I don't care how much money you have in the bank. I'm not going to give you a, job, a loan because you don't have a job. I'm like, 
oh crap. So then I sold my house. I took a small hit in the sale. Um, so I didn't even, you know, get back all of my money. I lost probably about $5,000 in the transaction, but it was more important for me to have dry powder, have money waiting on the sidelines. You know, it's the opportunity cost. I want to be nimble and be able to jump on my first commercial deal when I find it. So then, you know, compare that to commercial. Remember, I go to a lender, try to buy a 48 unit apartment complex with no experience, no job. I've got some money and some time. That's really all I have for the bank. So I work with a mortgage broker because my coach taught me the value of working with a mortgage broker. Well, this mortgage broker shops me around in my property around. Everybody says no. Everybody says no. Everybody says no. They finally find somebody right outside of Chicago that is willing to lend to me. Remember, I my personal residence, nobody would talk to me. I was able to buy a $1.6 million property with no job and no paycheck because in commercial real estate, I would guesstimate the decision on whether to lend to you is about 70 to 80% on the property itself. Now they're going to look at you. Of course, do you have a decent um, credit score? Are you, do you have a clean background? Are you not a bad person? Do you have felonies? Oh, you're probably not going to get these loans, but um, as long as you're a good person with a clean background, a good credit score, and you do have some money saved, they're going to lend to you if they like the project. So again, I couldn't get a loan for my personal residence, which back then it was probably valued at about $180,000. But yet, this almost the same time, I could go out and get a $1.6 million property financed. Because the property that I'm buying, again, it's a business. It's commercial real estate. It generates profit that I can use to pay off that loan. And that's what the bank's looking at. Does it... Do I think it's going to produce enough profit for Bruce to be able to satisfy his debt to me? And the answer was yes. So again, I checked out as a clean person and they liked the property enough. I got the loan. That is a huge differentiating factor because it happens even if you're trying to buy a single family rent home, it's still single family. They're still going to treat you exactly the same way. You're going to have your debt to income um debt to income ratio, your DTI that you're going to have to pay attention to. They're going to want to see what your paycheck is and all that. So that you don't deal with that for the most part in commercial. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a pretty interesting story about that. So like I said, in 2019, I bought four commercial properties um, with a value of, I would say around $5 million. And I went at the end of 19, beginning of 20, um, I was trying to buy a four bedroom house in five points in East Nashville. I was actually going to Airbnb it. This is the only way that I could justify doing single family residential was that it was going to be basically 90% uh, investment to me. Um, and I love the location and I could see myself living there in the future. So, you know, went to qualify for the loan. Now keep in mind, this is a $600,000 house. I didn't have, I don't have a great credit history because I have never had credit cards. So that's one thing I've had to work on. I've always paid cash for everything. And, and, you know, that's, uh, I guess personally, that's just not, I don't know. It's weird. It's weird that you can have a zero credit score because you don't use credit cards. To me, that would seem like you've got a pretty good credit history, but <laughs> I don't make up the rules here. So anyway, I, I'm going to, to apply for this this loan, and the bank is like, "Yeah, we you're gonna have to come up with like 40 percent down. We can't we can't give you a, this loan to buy this house." And I'm like, "What are you talking about? I just bought five million dollars of commercial real estate. 
you're you're telling me I can't buy a six hundred thousand dollar house? And I'm like, yeah, no, we we can't get you qualified. It just doesn't work. I mean, to me, that was like night and day of the differences in lending. It's so interesting. Yeah, so I think it was Grant Cardone. I heard one time on a podcast that he was doing that. You know, it's funny. Try to go to a bank. Say, go to Bank of America. We have tons of accounts there, so I'm not saying anything bad about Bank of America, but it's the system. Go to Bank of America and say, hey, I want to take out a loan to buy stock in your company. <laughs> no. Oh, but I will give you $2 million to go buy that piece of commercial real estate, right? So lending in commercial real estate is very, very, very highly sought after for lenders because they see it's fairly safe. Um, the stock market is good, but it goes up and down. It's irrational most of the time. Um, and again, single family, it's all pinned on your personal ability to pay that loan back. So you're limited to your personal, um, to your paycheck. So again, you know, lending is just, it's just so night and day different and better when you get into um, commercial. Also, you're going to get very often, not always, it depends on how you want to get funding for these deals, but it's very likely you'll be able to get non-recourse debt on these deals too. You're not going to get that for the house you live in. Non-recourse debt means you don't sign a personal guarantee. Now, having said that, right, to dig a little deeper, you are going to sign a personal guarantee to say, I will not be a bad person. I will not commit fraud. I will not commit a crime. I will not, uh, you know, give you bad information. As long as I am a good person and operate legally and ethically, they can't come after me to get any lost money if the project goes south. Try getting that when you buy a house. No, they're not going to give you uh, non-recourse. It's going to be full recourse, meaning if that house doesn't work out for some reason, but you're still a good person, oh, they're still coming after you for any shortfall in that loan. So if they lend you $80,000 to buy a $100,000 house and they can only sell the house for $70,000 on the open market because you had to give it back to the bank, you're out of pocket $10,000 because they're going to come collect it from your butt. That does not happen in commercial real estate if you get non-recourse. Non-recourse doesn't exist in single family, but it does in multifamily. Now, everything we're talking about today, these are generalizations and rules of thumb that are almost always true. There is always going to be an example here or an example there, an outlier that some of these things might not be completely accurate, but almost without exception, the things that we're talking about today are going to be true. Yeah, exactly. I mean, for the most part, you know, everything that we're saying is is fairly market. I mean, you know, you're going to have recourse loans in commercial, you may be able to find non recourse loans in residential, but those are the exceptions, right? I mean, the only time that we really see recourse loans in commercial uh, is on, you know, heavy value add properties. So there's no income coming in, um, or development, which, you know, obviously, you're, you're spending a lot of money, and, and there's no income coming in. So, you know, there are some exceptions to the rules there. I think, you know, the other thing too, that is incredibly different, uh, other than lending is, is appreciation. I mean, that is, uh, to me, one of the biggest reasons why I don't invest in single family. Uh, aside from the, the myriad of reasons I've already given you, appreciation in residential real estate is so silly to me. You have to wait on your neighbor's house to sell for a little bit more so that their neighbor's house sells for a little bit more so that your house can now sell for a little bit more. And if homes on that street start, you know, going down in value, then your house is going to go down in value. There's just, there's almost nothing that you can do about that. Whereas, you know, appreciation and commercial is 
way, way better. It makes more sense. I mean, Bruce, talk about how, how appreciation works in commercial real estate. So we'll, we'll start with uh, residential. First of all, when you buy a house, whether it's for rent or it's for you to live in, valuation in single family is based on comparable sales. So it's comps. If you buy in a, in a neighborhood that has $150,000 houses, you buy your house for 70, you got a fantastic deal. You fix it up, you put a renter in there, and then you go to sell it, you're gonna sell it for 150 or whatever the comps are at that time. So you're locked into comps. If your neighbors on both sides are worth 150, unless yours is a lot bigger, you know, you're going to sell yours for 150. In commercial, it's all based on profitability. That's it. I can have two different properties across the street from each other, both built by the same person, the same year with everything exactly the same. One property is say has $100,000 in profitability. The other has $200,000 in profitability. Well, the one that's more profitable will sell for twice as much because they have twice the profitability. So in commercial, it's based on profitability. You're buying a stream of cash flow for the most part. That's basically the way it's working. And people decide I'm willing to pay this much for that level of cash flow. The higher the cash flow, free cash flow, the more you could sell the property for. So the valuation is completely different. So to give you an idea, to, to kind of drive this home. And I've talked about this on other episodes. I have a property in North Austin right now. We paid $18.7 million for the property. When we bought it, our, our top line profit, which is called NOI, there are you know other layers of profitability, but our NOI, which is the profit that you would use to pay for your loan, right? So when we bought that property, we uh, the NOI, was roughly $185,000 a month. Now, after uh, owning it for about three years, and right before we went through COVID, right? Because, you know, COVID is kind of throwing everybody for a loop right now. But in January of 2020, before COVID sunk in, uh, you know, our NOI had gone from $85,000 a month to $130,000 to $135,000 a month. So we dramatically increased the profitability of the property. So now about, I think it was about a month ago, I had somebody reach out to me uh, unsolicited uh, and say, hey, I'd love to buy your property. I have a group behind me that we have tons of money to deploy. We've bought a lot of properties and we want to get into Austin and we would really be interested in buying your property. I'm trying to choke these people to get them to leave me alone. So I don't want to sell the damn thing. It's really profitable. We're making good money on it. The cash flow is great. So I said, you know, it would take at least 32 to 34 million dollars before i would even consider okay so they're going to go away i don't have to deal with this anymore they came back said um uh, i think that'll work i'm like oh uh <laughs> i want to sell this that didn't work but think about that now that's a high level unsolicited offer that it may not go through at 34 maybe they come down to 30 right once they really dig in but they think at a high level, back of napkin, look at it, that they could make this thing work at 32 to 34 million. If I sell it for 32 million, I bought it for 18. Holy crap. And that's in roughly three years. That's a four or five X return for my investors. That doesn't happen with a house. That can't happen with a house because there's no way in hell your property value is going to go up that much in three years. Well, okay. There are some weird things that happen in really weird bubble yeah. markets, right? <laughs> exactly. But as a rule of thumb, that's not going to happen in single family. 
that happens in commercial because I drove the profitability higher because we instituted lots of revenue streams that the previous owner didn't think about. We reduced expenses in a, uh, in a reasonable way, in a smart way that didn't negatively impact the residents or the property. And we started raising rents when we made the property, uh, we made the property nicer and better. People were willing to spend more to live there. So again, you can't do that in single family. Yeah, exactly. And, and the other thing is, um, you know, too, I mean, that's why Bruce and I love these heavy value add commercial projects, because we can actually come in and buy the commercial property on a price per square foot. But when we go to refinance or sell it, we're, we're basing it on cap rates. So we'll come in, take it, you know, we're looking at this project in, in Chattanooga. It's 41,000 square feet of office space, completely vacant. And we're buying it for, I don't know, 40, $45 a foot. I mean, you could not build it back for four times that price. We'll drop in 30 to $35 a foot in renovations. And we'll spend the next two years leasing it up and stabilizing it. So we'll be all in, give or take $3 million. By the time that we're done, based on cap rates, you know, we're expecting that project to be, I don't know, five, five and a half million dollars. I mean, you just, you can't do that with a house. And so I think, you know, the cap rates are, are incredibly beneficial uh, for commercial real estate. Because if you think about it, I mean, look, commercial real estate at the end of the day is just an extension of investment banking, right? I mean, you're, you're basically trading assets that produce income. Right. So let's break down what you say, because we do this every time. Right. So we'll be covering a topic, but I want to make sure everybody understands a little more deeply than the surface that we're talking about. Yeah. So remember, Tyler said we're going to be all into this property for about three. And when we go to exit, it'll be worth, you know, five to five and a half. So let's say it's worth five. So you think, OK, you increase the value by two million dollars. That's really good. That's 66 percent increase in value. Yeah, it is. But our value increase is based on the amount of money we put into the deal. We're not going to put this much into it, but let's just say we're going to put a million bucks in. It's really going to be about 850 something like that. But let's say it's a million dollars that we had to put in between the down payment, the operating capital, the, uh, the uh, what's the other thing? Oh, the closing costs, right? So everything together is, a, say, a million bucks because that's pretty close. We improve the value by two to two and a half million. So let's say we improve the value by two million. We only invested a hundred. We doubled our money. That's a 200% return. It's not a 66% return that some of you might be thinking that, oh, you bought it for three, it's worth five. That's a 66%. Yes, the appreciation was 66%, but we only had to invest a million into it to buy it. So yeah, it, it's the power of leverage. Dave Ramsey's wrong. You can use <laughs> debt if you do it safely, you do it wisely, and you, you do use it for the right reasons. That's that's why we're doing what we're doing because, again, that's why millionaires and billionaires are heavily invested in commercial real estate. Yeah, yeah. And just to clarify, real quick, Bruce said we bought it for a hundred. He meant we bought it for a million. So million dollars in, oh, yeah. in, in delta of two million. So you know, you three you x your money, uh, which is you know, it's it's so tough to do that in residential. Um, hey, we got another question, Bruce. Coming back to lending. Um, for loans, do you mostly go to bigger banks, smaller, or credit unions? Uh, you know, for the majority of my projects, um, or at least the stuff that we're doing in Nashville, 
um, you know, which is more of the commercial value add or development. We use local and regional uh, banks. They, they tend to know the area better. They're easier to work with. And when I say, hey, this property is completely vacant, well, we'll be able to fill it up quicker. They understand that. But Bruce, what's your experience? You know, because you're working on these bigger multifamily deals. Right. So even what you said, yeah, you're going to use local regional uh, banks when you're dealing in commercial, but it's still, it, it's all based on scale. If you go down, go do something like we're doing in, uh, in Madison, right. You're not going to go to a regional bank. It's too big for them. Yeah. Right. So we're, we're doing a deal that what, when it's all said and done be worth 150 million, maybe. Oh no. I mean the, the total project cost is going to be between 300 and 500 million. Oh, okay. Yeah. So a regional can't really handle that. So it depends on scale too. You will get to where you need to reach out to some of the national brokers and, and lenders, but yeah, in multifamily, I'm buying two to 400 unit properties. I'll, I'll go down to a hundred sometimes, but with those I'm using agency debt, which is uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. It's called, it's referred to as agency. Um, so when you start playing in a bigger sandbox, you probably do need to get yourself into some bigger, more sophisticated lenders, you'll get better terms almost always. But again, when you're dealing with something that's a little bit smaller, that, you know, the big guys, they're probably not going to take a look at it because they don't know the market well enough to justify it. And it's so small that, you know, it'll be left best to a, a local or a regional because they know the market. They know they can drive by it and see the asset themselves. But yeah, when you're when you start to get up and scale, uh, you, you're definitely going to use a mortgage broker. Always use a mortgage broker. I've done a lot of deals. I always use a mortgage broker because they're going to farm my loan out to multiple people on my behalf. They don't get paid until I get a loan. So I think you should always use a mortgage broker. Yeah, and, and, and the other thing, too, that I think a lot of newcomers to commercial real estate don't realize or maybe just don't know uh, you know, lending is all about the relationship, right? I mean, you've got to have a strong relationship with your mortgage broker or your local lenders or, you know, whoever you're going to be using. You know, the what I like and appreciate about these local and regional guys is that when I'm talking to my, my, my lender, you know, chances are good that he actually sits on the loan committee which means that he's the one at the board meeting and he actually does have a say in whether or not the bank should or should not make this loan to us. Hopefully it should. Um, but, you know, you go to these bigger banks. I mean, one, the bigger banks, like, you know, Bank of America, like Bruce said, we've got a number of accounts there. But for us, it just doesn't make any sense to go to them for a commercial loan. Uh, there's just far more red tape. And your local guy is going to have a much stricter box uh, with which he is going to be able to to lend you money. And, you know, whereas these these local regional guys, they actually have far more flexibility uh, in what they're able to offer. Yep, I agree completely. <clears throat> Excuse yeah. me. So no, no worries. So one thing, I mean, we've touched on this a little bit throughout, obviously, but pros and cons of commercial. I think it would actually be good for us to just walk through the pros and cons of investing in commercial real estate over multifamily. So, Bruce, what, what would you say are the cons? Let's start there. What are the cons of commercial real estate? Well, I mean, it's like anything. It comes with risk, right? It does come with risk. You need to know what you're doing to not get yourself in trouble. Um, it's usually going to take more money to get involved, um, but it's it's definitely worth it once you do. But there is a higher barrier to entry usually because a, a house, you might be able to pick up a house in the Rust Belt part of the country for $100,000 still. Some parts of the country probably still for sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000. Commercial is going to be more expensive than that. You know, the, what's the smallest you've ever bought? 
the smallest I've ever bought. Um, okay. We just bought a like twenty one hundred square foot retail center in East Nashville for four hundred and twelve thousand. Okay, so the smallest you've done is four hundred and twelve thousand. So yeah, your your barrier to entry, your cost to entry is going to be higher. Um, outside of that, I mean, there's probably stuff that I'm forgetting, but I don't see many other cons now. Many of you don't know how to do commercial, and I guess you could say that's a con. You just got to educate yourself. Align yourself with somebody that you can bring a deal to that will allow you to be part of the deal. Hire a, a successful, experienced coach, and you can you can firm that up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think I think the you know, I mean, the the money side of it is is certainly a con, right? I mean, it is tougher to get into it if you've never had experience raising capital, uh, or you don't have access to capital. I mean that. That could be a con. Um, on the on the flip side, if you've got a lot of experience and people have been watching you for a while, then they'll start throwing money at you. I mean, that's that's the interesting thing about commercial real estate is once you have a proven track record, I mean, raising money for deals. I mean, Bruce, how long did it take you to raise money for your first deal, and how long does it take you to raise money for your deals now? That first deal probably took me a couple of months. Uh, well, honestly, I worked on it for about nine months. Uh, cultivating relationships and that kind of thing. But uh, we did a, a $12 million cash rate. That first one, I only had to raise $460,000. Um, our biggest raise to date was $12 million. It took us a month and a half, two months, something like that. So yeah, it, you, you get to where you establish a track record and name for yourself in the industry and people will feel more comfortable in giving you money. So yeah, that first one is always, always, always going to be the hardest to do without any, without any question. I'd say I'd say another con is probably the learning curve, right? I mean, there's there's just not as much information out there on commercial real estate uh, as there is in residential, um, and I would throw that in the category too of like look at HGTV, right? Like you see all of these TV shows on you know house flipping and house hunters and this and that and and you know how to renovate homes and you know I mean there's literally super popular TV shows on, on buying and investing in residential real estate. You don't see any of that for commercial and multifamily, which has always surprised me. I mean, I think that that would actually be really interesting to have if HGTV had a TV show about commercial or multifamily syndication, right? I mean, cause that's, that's high stakes too. I mean, you've got million dollar listing New York. Why not have, you know, multi-million dollar apartment complex with apartment guy, Bruce Peterson. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you bring that up because, uh, you know, yes, there's Tarek and Christina, there's Magnolia, Chip and Joanna, you know, there's all these flippers and all these redesign companies and, and shows. I actually had somebody approach me, wanted to, wanted to develop a, um, a reality show with me about being a, a multifamily syndicator. I'm like, somebody wanted to put your yeah. mug on TV. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Believe it or not, my ugly ass on TV, um, I would get bleeped all the time, I'm sure. But, um, but you know, to be fair, I actually told him, I said, look, dude, I could not be more flattered. And someday maybe, but first of all, the timing's not right for me to go down that road. I, I got too much other stuff going on. But, dude, really, who is going to want to follow my ass around and talk about I'm going to try to buy that apartment complex? You know, I, I don't know. I just didn't see there would be a big market for it, but a big audience. But he apparently did because he wouldn't have suggested it to me had it not been so. But. Yeah, you know, like you said, there, Dude, there's just there, no. There, one of the most popular TV shows ever is about a bunch of like overweight dudes sitting in a pawn shop. Come on, following you <laughs> doing multifamily syndication would be so much fun. 
Well, I, I don't know. I just don't think I'm that entertaining. And it, it, nobody would want to see me. I'm not pretty like Tarek and Christina. So, you know, you know, again, I was very flattered, but it sounds like some people are thinking that way now, thinking about bringing some commercial stuff uh, to the airwaves. But your point, though, is valid that there's not as much, there's not as many resources out there to learn it. They are out there, but a lot of times it's going into some universities, a real estate program, a degree program that you got to get at least an associate's, which is two years, and oftentimes a master's, which is six years. Right. So it, it's very formal education. Um, it's just not as readily available. You're right. Yeah. I mean, look at bigger pockets, the, the biggest real estate platform out there and the overwhelming majority of what they they do. I think now they talk a little bit more about multifamily than they used to. But it used to be all single family flips and wholesaling and that kind of stuff. Um, and I think it's probably because it's more familiar to most people, right? I mean, most people understand what residential homes are. Right. It, well, and that's the thing. You know, we talked about it earlier that I don't know how to do it. Well, you didn't know how to do what you're doing now, whatever that is. You had to learn whatever it is you're doing now. You know, I'm a coder. I write pro, computer programs or I make slushies at 7-Eleven. Well, you didn't know how to do either one of those things when you started. So, yeah, people are scared to take that jump because it, it – it's, it is scary. I get it. And it, you're dealing with a lot more money and that scares a lot of people away. But I, I love, you know, quoting to, uh, what uh, Henry Ford. If you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you always got. If you want to make a change, if you want a better life, if you want something more for yourself, you're just going to have to push yourself into things that you don't feel comfortable doing. Maybe you got to do it safely. Again, have a model, have a mentor, have a coach, but you got to get out there and, and take your shot. Wayne Gretzky, I've missed 100% of the shots I didn't take, right? <clears throat> yeah, so I mean, I would throw, so obviously cons. Uh, we've got the the dollar barrier that you've got to raise more money, uh, and then also the lack of educational resources out there. So hopefully Bruce and I are helping you bridge that gap by talking about commercial real estate. Uh, you know, Bruce talks about it on his LinkedIn as well. He's got uh, his book, Syndication is a Bitch, uh, which you can see in the background right there. Um, Oh, yeah. But, but yeah. Um, so, you know, also I've got a blog and I share it on my Instagram too. And I think that that's one of the things that, that has helped people gravitate towards us, honestly, is that we're willing to open the doors. Uh, whereas a lot of commercial real estate investors, developers, brokers, et cetera, just aren't. I mean, it, which, which is, is kind of interesting, right? I mean, what, you know, I guess people feel like they're creating competition, but um, let's talk about pros. I mean, obviously, we've, we could write a novel about the pros of investing in commercial real estate, and that's, that's a great idea. I'm going to write that book. Uh, but, Bruce, what are the pros of investing in commercial real estate? So we've hit on all of them, but this will, to me, it will be more of a recap. So we've just kind exactly. of been wandering all over the place, and that's kind of the format of the show. That's what we want. It's commercial conversations, right? We're not going to bullet point stuff, but now I'll try to wrap it up. And I've got my notes, so to make sure and I don't we, forget anything. But And we both have know, ADD, so, I mean, this is just how it's going to be. We're going to be a little all over the place, but hopefully it feels like yeah. you're actually here having a conversation with us. Yeah. So first, you know, we, we talked about it's easier lending. Remember, I couldn't get a loan to buy my uh, to, for my personal residence because I didn't have a job, but I could get a one point six million dollar property funded with a bank, with a lender um, for commercial real estate. So lending is dramatically easier. It's easier to manage. Um, you know, you buy uh, let, let's say you buy five houses. 
chances are they're not going to be in the same neighborhood next door to each other. They're probably going to be all over the city or at least in multiple neighborhoods and maybe even multiple states. That's five units. I can buy a 50-unit apartment complex. They're all right there in one spot under one roof that one person can sit there on site and manage. All right, so it's a lot easier to manage. Um, much higher upside. We talked about that too, that when you're buying single family, either rent homes or a place for you to live, when it's time to sell, your valuation is determined by the neighborhood the house is in. What are your neighbors selling for? If you're selling for $100,000, you're going to sell your house for $100,000, give or take you know, $1,000 here or there. But that's it. You're locked into what the neighborhood's selling for. When you buy commercial real estate, you are selling a profit stream. The more profitable you make the property, the more you can then sell the property for. So the valuation metrics are totally, totally, totally different. Um, when you're buying multifamily, we didn't exactly talk about this, but you're buying a true business now. Remember, we, we did talk about how when I buy an apartment complex, say a 100-unit, 200-unit apartment complex, part of my assessing the deal to make sure it works and the way the lender is going to look at it too, does it have enough profit generated or enough income generated to pay all of your payroll, all of your marketing, all of your repairs that will come up, your utilities, um, your contract labor, all of that's so your admin. You got to pay for your printer. You got to pay for your phone, for your websites. All that's already factored in because you're buying a fully functional, legitimate business. It doesn't operate like that in single family. Now, I would argue if you buy single family, you need to run it as close to a traditional, legitimate business as you can. So when it's time to scale to either more and more and more houses, or hopefully commercial someday, you will have already put the systems in place to run a business that you need. So again, when you're buying commercial, you're buying a true business now and the speed to scale, right? The, the larger the property you can buy, the easier it becomes. Because when I buy a hundred unit property, I can really only afford one full-time person to sit in the office. If I buy a 300 unit property, I can now afford to have three full-time people in the office. So if somebody gets sick, um, you know, I've got two other people that can come and open the office. So we're talking about speed to scale. So we're talking about scale here. It's easier to run and manage, operate a larger asset. Well, say I'm not going to operate. I'm going to give it to a third party management company. Well, they're going to see it the same way. It's easier for me to manage for you, sir, or madam, a 300 unit property than it is a 10 unit property. So the bigger you go, the easier it is. And then the bigger your portfolio, the easier things get as well. Because if you have one 50-unit apartment complex, well, you're probably going to do everything outside of sit on property and manage the property itself. But as far as deal flow and you know renegotiating contracts and fighting your taxes every year, you're going to wear every single hat. You're going to be the your own bookkeeper. You're going to be your own operations guy that deals with all the vendors that you have contracts with. When you get scale and say you get to four, five, six hundred units, uh, four to five or six hundred units. Remember, I'm talking about multifamily because that's my background. Well, now you can actually afford to start hiring corporate staff, not just the staff that sits on the property every day and repairs it and leases it. Now you have people working at your corporate office that handle all the bookkeeping for you, handle all the HR for you, handle all of the the insurance, the benefits. Uh, so it gets easier that way too. So your first two properties, you're going to pretty much wear all of your all the hats yourself outside of the property manager. But then once you get to property three, four, and five, 
you can start offloading that to more professional people and bringing more qualified people onto your team. So scale is important. You know, try buying 10 houses. It might take you a year or two. I can buy a hundred unit property in one day. Now it took me three days, three months to close it true, but I signed the documents that day. That day I now own a hundred units. Buy a hundred houses, it might take you five or 10 years. So that those are my high level advantages of commercial with a, a lean toward multifamily. But most everything that I said is completely true with all forms of commercial real estate. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the wealth building opportunity in commercial real estate is just so much greater, right? I mean, you can you can have 10 people move out of a multifamily apartment complex. And yeah, you'll probably notice it if, if there's only 100 units. Uh, but if you have one person move out of a single family residential home, that's 100% vacancy. And, you know, that can you can very quickly start having to come out of pocket to maintain that property. Um, you know, we, we also covered appreciation. I mean, the appreciation is massive. The fact that we can go into commercial and literally force appreciation. You know, one thing Bruce likes to do is, you know, add covered parking. He's in Texas, right? I mean, people love covered parking because it's so hot. Well, he can charge an extra $25, $50, $75 a month for that. And you think about how much that ends up adding to the bottom line when you're basing that $50 a month, which becomes $600 a year on a cap rate, especially multifamily, you know, four and a half, five cap. That's very, very valuable. So I think that that's, uh, that's massive. The one thing that I would add to, and, and this is probably more on the commercial side than, than, than it is on multifamily, is the neighborhood impact. I mean, that has always been of major significance to me. I mean, it's why I love being in Nashville where I grew up and doing commercial real estate here, I get to literally have an impact on everybody's day-to-day -day lives through the projects that we do. I get to have an impact on whether a neighborhood gets the next cool restaurant or they get the next cool bar or that great little neighborhood market where you know everybody can run down and grab a juice and, and a sandwich and hang out with friends. Um, and Or I can be the guy that brings check cashing places or a tire shop or, or whatever that, that ends up decreasing property values. I mean, you literally have an impact on that neighborhood. And so uh, to me, that's a major positive. If, if you keep that and you're conscious about who you are willing to bring in and who you're not and, and kind of how you conduct your business, I mean, you can literally shape a neighborhood to be a better place than it was before. And to me, that's, that's, that's something really beautiful about commercial real estate. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I want to drive a little deeper on one of the things you said again, obviously, we're always doing this. But so you were talking about adding um, income streams. And, you know, I, I do covered parking. Covered parking is not cheap. It costs me, you know, between $900 and $1,000 for every space that I cover with a parking structure, right? But the return is crazy um, because I'm going to make most, probably about 50% of that money back in the first year through my, my rental rates. But Let's go a step farther, right? So because of the power of cap rates and lending, for every dollar of additional profit you can generate in your property, your property's value will go up 15 to $20 or more. So think about that. If I add, see, we did a project at one of my properties where we bought all of our own laundry machines. Instead of having an outside company provide them for us, in our laundry rooms and they just give us a portion 
of the income from those washing machines. I mean, of course, because they're providing the washing machines, they're maintaining the washing machines. So why wouldn't they take the majority of the income? But they give us a small piece of it. They give us about, you know, 40 to 50% uh, at most usually. By going out and buying my own, I was able to get all of the income in my own pocket now. Now, yes, I have to repair them and they need to be repaired every once in a while. Totally fine. But I'm making so much more income from it. I have more than enough money to repair them myself and still come out ahead. So by doing that, I uh, generated roughly 50,000 additional dollars in income than I did with my uh, third party company doing it for me. So not just am I making 50,000, I'm making 50 additional thousand dollars than I was with my previous setup. So if we take a cap rate and take that $50,000 and added profitability, Divide that by your cap rate, which gives you value. Cap rates right now are actually four in that neighborhood, but say they're six. I added $833,333 in, uh, in value to that property by only adding $50,000 a year in income. You can't do that in, in single family. You just can't. So again, that's a very clear illustration of why we want to be in commercial and why we want to figure out how we can drive profitability. If you buy a property and you don't increase the profitability, chances are it's not going to go up in value. It's just that simple. Or if you make it a worse property, you start to uh, not have as much profit. Well, then when it's time to sell, you're probably going to sell for less. So it goes both ways. It's on you to make it more profitable. But if you don't, well, then it's on you that it lost its value often. Yeah, while you were doing that, I was running the numbers on just one parking space being covered. Mm -hmm. If you were able to charge $50 a month uh, for that one parking space, uh, that's $600 a year. And I ran my numbers at a five cap. So you would take that 600, you would divide it by 0 0.05 because obviously cap rates are percentages. That adds $12,000 in value. One covered parking space added $12,000 in value. That's, I mean, right. that's remarkable that you can do that. Right. And I get a lot of people saying, well, I'm not looking to sell it anytime soon. Okay. Well then let's look at it from an ROI standpoint. So you've got two different calculuses, basically calculi, I don't know, calculus is probably, but there's two different ways to look at this. I'm going to spend X amount of money to develop this much in income. That's called an ROI, right? So if I spend a hundred thousand dollars for something that makes me $50,000, well, my ROI is basically 50% or it takes two years to make my money back. After that two years, all my profit from that is gonna be, it's, it's all gravy, it's all bonus, right? So same exact exercise. I don't wanna sell Bruce, so I'm not worried about valuation right now. I wanna make sure that if I spend this amount of money, is it gonna be worth it to me for the added income I can get? You have to decide what your threshold or your required um, ROI is to justify the, uh, the, the project. But so the actual numbers on that property, it cost me $930 to spend to get uh, that thing built. And then at that property, I'm renting them for $45 a unit. So we'll do that math, right? So $45 a unit per month times 12 months is $540. Now you divide that by the $930 it cost me to build it. It's a 58% ROI. So basically saying if I was to invest $1,000, I would expect to get $580 in income every single year from it. 
I'll take right? that. So my ROI is 58%. That's incredibly high. I'm going to make my money back in less than two years. That's crazy. So it's a great move from an ROI standpoint, but then it also adds huge value uh, on the backside. So if you think I'm going to sell in about a year, you might want to do some of these bigger projects if you have the capital on hand to do it, obviously, uh, because if you do it now, you sell in a year, you'll recognize that added value. So even if it's not the highest ROI, if it still adds significantly to your value, you still may want to do it. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the great thing about commercial real estate, right? I mean, everything is great about it. But again, you know, you can get you can do these little projects, get high ROI on them, but they also significantly increase the value. And so it doesn't matter which side you're going for, you're probably going to benefit as long as you're doing something that actually makes sense, right? We right. had a uh, we've got another really good question. I love this one. Uh, where would y'all say are the highest profit margins in commercial property types by ranking? Um that's uh, that's probably a pretty in-depth question, and it's going to depend on what you're willing to invest in. I would say let's not go by actual commercial property type, but let's go by investment strategy. I think first, uh, development is obviously going to be, hands down, the most profitable side of commercial real estate. Um, now, obviously, you're, it's also the riskiest, right? So it's a risk-reward factor. You're taking on, you know, we're, we're doing a deal in Nashville, uh, the provision area, which we've obviously been talking about. That's a $19.2 million project. Now, the returns for our investors are better than almost anything else we've ever done. Uh, you know, Bruce talks about his investors. Where, where are you looking at right now for IRRs and multifamily? Like 13 to 15 or 12 to 14? What? What my investors are telling me is that they need to see like between 11 and a 13, maybe a 14% IRR to... To consider investing. Yeah. So we're looking at, you know, low teens IRRs for multifamily. And this development project is a 20% IRR. So it's it's almost 50% higher. Uh, now, obviously, we're taking more risk. It's going to be, you know, we've got to get out there and perform in the project, which we have no qualms doing. We love that. Um, but it's it's a different type of project. I would say next on the list, it would be heavy value add. So that's what Bruce and I were talking about earlier, where you've got a completely vacant or nearly vacant building that you have to come in and completely overhaul because that's your next best way to add as much value to a site as possible. And again, increase uh, what you'd be able to sell uh, for or cash flow. Uh, next, and, and Bruce, I'm sure you'd, you'd probably agree with me on this one, is just your typical value add. Um, you know, because like in multifamily, you'll go in and you'll add some covered parking spaces, you'll paint the outside of the building, you'll raise rents by $50, but you've already got stabilized or relatively stable cash flow. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not too risky, but you still got to get in there and do a little work to make it to make it work. I would say the safest by far is like single tenant net, you know, credit net investments, um, or class A stabilized assets. You know, you'll get, you know, four caps, on those properties, but the income is so secure, you know, you'll, you'll get a four cap. You don't have to, you don't have to do any work. You don't have to do anything. I mean, Bruce, would you agree with the, with the, those four? Yeah, I think development is by far the most profitable, but like you said, it comes with the most risk and it, it takes the highest degree of skill. There's so much more to know, understand, and be able to coordinate and execute on. You know, when I buy a fully stabilized multifamily deal, well, it's already operating efficiently. 
you know, what I'm buying is 30 to 40 year old assets. It has a 30 to 40 year track record of being profitable, right? I might be able to come in and make it a little better than the previous owner, but for the most part, it's generating cash flow right off the bat. Since there is more risk and a whole lot more work going into development, it will always come with a higher return or it always should come with a higher return. If you're being pitched deals by syndicators like us and, you know, they're pitching a development that will return 8%. Well, don't invest in that. That's ridiculous. Right. You can right get away. 11 to 12 or 13% in multifamily, and it's a lot more stable. It's a lot more, uh, it's a lot less risky because, again, many of the things we do, they're 30 and 40 years old. They've, they've proven to be profitable the whole time. So, uh, and then the, the safest, like you said, is, you know, that triple net. Basically, what, what he's talking about with triple net is that you give somebody a space, they rent it from you. But then they're also responsible for their uh, for their share of taxes, insurance, repair, common area maintenance. They're responsible for everything. Basically, you got to make the the mortgage payment, and that that's almost all you're doing. There are a little thing here. There is a little thing here and there. Now, <clears throat> if the entire roof gets sucked off the entire you know ten tenant building, okay, you're going to have to do some of that work. But for the most part, triple net, you just collect rent and you know, they pay all the bills for you. There's almost no expense structure, but because it is the safest implied, that is, it's going to come with the lowest return as well. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's tough to really say, you know, by asset type, um, which is more profitable because, you know, I mean, as Bruce said earlier, you know, value add commercial or value add multifamily is probably the, the least profitable of commercial real estate, but that comes with a caveat, right? I mean, he's saying the the value add projects that they're working on, which are relatively stabilized, but still have some meat on the bone to value add, you know, they're already income producing. Um, you could say, you know, I mean, obviously multifamily development could be far more lucrative than buying an office tower downtown. It just depends on really the type uh, of investment strategy that you're doing. I think that you could be just as successful in industrial as you are in multifamily or just as successful in office as you are in retail. It just depends on what your overall strategy is. Right. And one thing that we haven't really talked about yet, and I don't know that we will because we don't have a lot of experience there. So we will bring somebody in to talk to us about it. You know, because a lot of people are talking about storage and a lot of people are talking about mobile homes right now. Well, we don't operate there, so we're not going to talk about it. We're only going to talk about the things that we know, the things that we've been good at and have success and in, in, in a track record. So we're not going to talk about stuff that we read in a book and our experts, like some people will do. Um, we don't know it. And I know a lot of you will have questions about that, and I understand that. So over the, the next uh, maybe month or two, hopefully, we'll be able to you know, develop somebody that we can bring on to talk to us about um, self-storage and about mobile homes as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I've got a, I've got a guy for self-storage here in Nashville. And I mean, our buddy Brandon Turner does a whole lot of mobile homes. We need to, we need to get yeah. him on the show to talk about that. Oh, I think um, so. Yeah, obviously. I mean, he, he does that. He's doing that quite a bit. He talks about it all the time. Now. Um, and, and well, he's a big shot just, now, so he probably doesn't have any time for us. Oh yeah. 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 Well, hey, <laughs> but, Maybe for you. I mean, maybe for you. Um, well, so we're, we're kind of, you know, closing up on, on, you know, 90 minutes here. I mean, Bruce, uh, you know, I think we talked about for next week. Uh, are we going to talk about working with brokers and finding deals and, and like how to build relationships with brokers? Do you think that's appropriate for our next episode? I mean, 
And oh, absolutely. Because that's one of the most fundamental things. The most fundamental thing, if you're going to syndicate that is, is to find the money. That nothing happens without the money. So that and how to work with a broker and find those deals that, yeah. So we can talk about that next. That's fine. Yeah, that was perfect. Well, let's talk about working with brokers and building that relationship on the next episode. And I think we need to have an episode where we dive into raising capital and investor relations. I think that that would be appropriate to follow that next because that's kind of the timeline, right? You got to go find the deal, then you got to raise the money. But I mean, technically, you do need to be raising the money before uh, you find the deal. So it's kind of a chicken I was about and egg to correct thing. you. <laughs> yeah. It's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing. Yep. Oh, oh it is. Definitely. Yep. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of Commercial Conversations Over Coffee. I uh, appreciate you joining us. If uh, if you want to join us live and ask questions like everybody was today, uh, we do go live on YouTube Fridays at 10 a.m. Um, follow me on Instagram. Let me pull up our Instagram handles here real quick. Uh, um, I'm at commercial in Nashville with underscores in between the words. Bruce is at apt.guy. Um, and follow us for updates on uh, the podcast. Um, we will we'll do swipe ups or we'll do links um, so that you can come join us when we're live. Otherwise, we will see you next time. Later, guys.